Hello, welcome to Wheat from the Chaff. I'm Finlow Castain, the editor-in-chief of 8.9.com. And I'm Phil Carson, the UK head of policy for the nature-friendly farming network. And later on today, we're going to be joined by Stephen Alexander, who's the Nature Friendly Farming uh, Chair in Northern Ireland. Uh, But before that, we're going to do what we usually do. We're going to go through a few of the stories that have appeared on 8.9.com over the last week, or in fact, two weeks this time, because we didn't have a programme last week, uh, and just, you know, sort of talk through them in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, Phil, I just want to talk about the British Cattle Breeders Club, because it was their conference that I was at last Monday, which meant that we weren't able to have the podcast and I was doing the opening keynote on their beef day. Shall I tell you what it was about? Please do, Finno, and just for any eagle-eyed listeners or viewers to anything 8.9 related, I'm sure you'll have noticed that Finlow was interviewing quite a few leading lights in this field, um, I think, to try and build a very coherent argument. I'll be really interested to hear how that went. I was, and I was sort of trying to build my knowledge as well. So I had an understanding of the audience that was there. But it was interesting because this uh, this particular conference it was sort of subtitled Green Genes. And so what it was trying to do was to look at how cattle breeding needed to change, how it needed to evolve in order to meet the market needs of the future. And of course, there were lots of people who were much more embedded in breeding and who were actively farming than myself. Um, but my job really was, was there to sort of look at the way that cattle can be used that livestock can be used in ecologically uh, vibrant systems. And the key message, I suppose, that I was delivering was one about ecological efficiency because we're told, aren't we, constantly that indoor, highly industrialised systems, that these are more efficient, that these give more volume, more kilos, more litres for fewer emissions. But my message was that these industrialised systems, um, which are often justified in terms of volume and the food security argument around volume and justified around emissions reduction, that they're actually staggeringly ecologically inefficient, that they diminish longer term food security by externalising those ecological costs, increasing ecological debt. Uh, But critically, they only produce food and livestock in these systems should be delivering food and fibre and critically those ecosystem functions that you would expect to get in agroecological systems. Uh, So the food, the fibre, the climate mitigation and adaptation, the biodiversity regeneration, as well as water and nutrient cycling and all the other bits and pieces. And how was uh, that received? So I suppose there's a bit of a a critique in there that the, the narrow view on efficiency from the lens of, uh, I suppose, greenhouse gases and food production. Um, That's a bit of a challenge, I suppose, to potentially many in the room. Yeah, how did that go down? Was there much of a a, challenge back? Well, the purpose of me being there was to challenge people to think again about some of their their preconceptions, some positive, some perhaps more negative. The feedback that I got, and I, I mean, I think this is people tend to give you feedback when they agree with you, if they disagree with you. If they disagree vehemently, they might come and tell you. If they just disagree a bit, they're more likely just to kind of steer clear. But the, the, you know, the responses that I got from people in the room were overwhelmingly positive. I think there is a, a real understanding and a knowledge that there is a need for change, but there's a real uh, necessity to understand what that market needs. And, you know, farmers they will do what the market is asking of them. There's a bit of a chicken and egg here, isn't there, in terms of the market has to start demanding regenerative breeding uh, breeds more and regenerative traits more in order for um, cattle breeders to start producing for that. But at the same time, there are leaders in the field like Rob Havard that we spoke to last time. And so, again, part of the reason that I was speaking to these farmers in advance of the British Cattle Breeders Club conference was to get a better understanding of the sort of traits that are necessary. So smaller framed animals, uh, more intelligent, uh, good mothering skills, the ability to self-medicate and uh, and to be outwintered. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And just a final point on this. And I think that, yeah, the market demand for it and the supply chain within this. And yeah, we'll be speaking about that quite a bit. But I remember just at yeah at Oxford Rail, I went to a very interesting discussion between um, I suppose a number of different organisations, some individual farmers and some within the supply chain as well. And there was this potential, I suppose I, I viewed it as a bit of a tension between um, the supply chain, which were very much advocating for quite a siloed kind of approach where they were looking at 
um, efficiency and, and, and maximizing efficiency and recognizing that biodiversity is important, but not really acknowledging that the really highly efficient approach maybe doesn't yeah, link it in with that kind of ecological efficiency argument. And then another organization talking about how they had animals in very, very difficult areas to farm, but really, really crucial in terms of the management of that land and um, for a range of different purposes. And they were talking about finishing times of 36 to 40 months. And there was these, yeah, the, no one really draw, drawn them together and went, um, I take it these guys don't supply to these guys then. It was just interesting. Um, but yeah, good to hear your experience was a positive one. And there's a real acknowledgement of, um, yeah, I suppose the potential of all of this. And that's why I wanted to coin this term ecological efficiency, because I, you know, I, I don't like it when I keep hearing people telling me that these highly industrialized systems are efficient because they're only being measured on a very small number of metrics. And, and if we're talking about needing something that's more holistic, then we need to call out the fact that they are ecologically inefficient and then define what our ecological efficiency is. And that's what I was trying to do. And if people want to read more about that, then there is a story on the website if you, uh, it's, it'll have drop down a bit now but if you google ecological efficiency it'll come up and there's a link then to the the full 4000 words <laughs> of the speech that I gave there let's move on to the first story from this uh, this last week or two and this is uh, the NFU and AHDB uh, are commissioning an independent review of farm assurance and clearly this is coming in the wake of the greener farms commitment kerfuffle there were there were feathers ruffled all this sort of came to a head uh, and the NFU and AHDB started sort of looking into this more broadly. And they're pointing out that it is 25 years since Red Tractor was formed, that now a generation on probably is the time to assess the value of farm assurance schemes and whether they are useful or not. And they're, they're wanting to get feedback from across the whole industry. They're asking how farm assurance can deliver value back to scheme members, how standards are developed to meet evolving needs of those members in the markets they serve, and how assurance members are engaged with in terms of the inspections and how technology is used. And one of the things that I want to say about this, I mean, I think this is a welcome thing. Uh, I think it's important to have these, you know, generational at least sort of reflections on where we are with particular systems. But I was struck by the way in which the stakeholders they're talking about are all membership stakeholders. And I think there are other stakeholders as well when it comes to assurance schemes that are important. Part of this is government and part of it is down to the, the customer or the consumer, depending on you know how we're thinking about people actually in, in, in the shopping aisles. Because of course, private assurance inspections are more regular and often more robust than government inspections. And so mm -hmm. they're really important in terms of legal compliance. Uh, but from a customer perspective, assurance schemes and labels are often the primary window that people have onto farms. And so there's an important leadership role for assurance schemes to play. Important, therefore, to accurately represent farming to the general public, but also to be clear and honest about the standards that are being delivered. And, and I think really importantly, and this is where this review perhaps could really you know, say something useful, not to clutter the shelves, not to clutter the marketplace with a, a vast proliferation of different labels and different standards that people just struggle to understand. Stand. Yeah, I'd agree. I think previous conversations we've had have kind of raised this issue and we, we mentioned the, the fair to nature standard and the polling that they undertook previously. And yeah, I think there's a lot of consumer confusion about various different terms and um, also various different standards as well. And yeah, it's a bit of a minefield. Knowing what you are buying is not contributing to harm is actually a bit of a difficult process to undertake. And there would be some that argue that potentially assured schemes shouldn't necessarily be gold plating um, basic regulations. So, yeah, this farm has complied with the law. Isn't that great? Um, yeah, is there a question in there about raising overall standards as a mark of mark of approval? And I think, yeah, the whole greener farm commitment and the kerfuffle around that is maybe an attempt to do that. So it'd be very, very interesting if this was a bit more um, holistic and broad in terms of its terms of reference, um, because ultimately the, the assurance scheme is there in many ways to try and demonstrate the value of a product and to, I suppose, bring everything together into one, one package. And I suppose that was the, the intention behind Red Tractor. But you're right, 
it's it's how it fits within the market and how how people engage with it is really really key within all of this. And as you say, you know, Red Tractor, it was it was essentially there to demonstrate that the farmers had complied, that there was legal compliance. And and yes, in different areas, they have um, demonstrated uh, additionality, you know, even beyond legal compliance, and and that has grown over the course of time. But of course, the entry into what's become a very busy sort of sustainable marketplace in terms of these green labels. Did we really need a greener farms commitment in addition to, you mentioned fair to nature, but we got organic, we got pasture for life, land to market, leaf mark, fair trade, rainforest alliance, RSPCA assured, marine stewardship council. There's there's so many there. And these are just, you know, some of the first ones I, I sort of thought of. And I think within that as well, I mean, you mentioned there fair to nature. And the, my memory of the conversations we've had around that is that there's also a real need for the rhetoric uh, the way that these schemes are marketed to match with the policy commitments below them. And I think actually fair to nature, uh, sometimes the way that it's communicated to the public isn't quite accurate when actually the policy standards and the policy behind the label are actually really good and sometimes in some ways better than the, the rhetoric is suggesting. So from my perspective, I think this is welcome. I think the farmers will welcome it. We'll come back to this. We'll watch the space with interest. Shall we go on to number Two. We should indeed. And the next one, again, is very much food related. And this is the publication of Scotland's Good Food Nation Plan, which was released last week. And this intends to set out the ways in which the Scottish government will work with businesses and organisations across society to help connect people to locally produced high quality food. So it's quite quite comprehensive and, and broad ranging in what it's trying to cover. So it covers everything from farm to fork um, and it aims to draw together a range of different policies. So I suppose it's the linking mechanism that brings yeah what has been quite a disparate policy landscape and it aims to work with a range of different institutions as well to try and provide some of that coherence. So you'd think this is brilliant, this is great, Scotland is world leading with the publication of its Good Food Nation plan. But wait, we've had a very, very lukewarm um, response to this from the organisation, I suppose, which was quite pivotal in securing the Good Food Nation Act, and that is Nourish Scotland. So Pete Ritchie, who's an organic farmer and the director of Nourish, um, yeah, it's kind of put forward a bit of a, a rebuttal and a challenge saying that while the Scottish government is not short of ambition when it comes to transforming Scottish food system, the Scottish food system, it lacks a plan on how to deliver it. So the Good Food Nation plan is a summary of government's existing policies, not buying anything new, with targets referring to baselines set in the previous decade. It does not respond to the pressing and worsening impacts the food system has on our climate, biodiversity and health inequalities. So... Yes, the last thing it says is, as it stands, the Good Food Nation plan does not live up to its name. And I think it's that um, conundrum of really ambitious legislation being put forward by a government. And then whenever you get into the, the very challenging world of actually implementing change, you can quite quickly come unstuck. It struck me, I mean, this came out on Burns Night, and it struck me that this was essentially that the government wanted a good news story around food on Burns Night. In many ways, it was a bit of a rehashing of old policy. And, you know, governments do this, and that's okay. But at the same time, it is useful to be able to draw attention back to what the Good Food Nation was trying to achieve. And as you say, Nourish was at the heart of this. It was trying to improve the health and improve the ecology um, and, and the sense of community around food as well. And actually, I'm going to be speaking to people uh, in an interview on 8.9 TV later this week, so people can look out for that. I think it's a great idea, but it needs to be more than simply just a marketing plan for existing food uh, businesses within Scotland. What's number three? Yes, number three is um, the very, very strongly headlined um, piece that says that supermarkets have been or accused of acting like a cartel. So this follows off the back of a debate that was held in Westminster following um, a very successful petition led by Riverford on getting fair about farming, which received over 112,000 signatures over a very, very short space of time. And we've spoken about this a couple of times on the podcast, but essentially um, this was calling on a reform of the kind of supermarket system to build greater fairness for farmers. So this Westminster debate focused very much on the grocery supply code 
of practice and how that would be overhauled and I suppose the role of the grocery codes adjudicator within that as well. And for anyone who doesn't know what the groceries um, code adjudicator is or the groceries supply code of practice, I'll give a very, very short description. So the groceries code adjudicator was set up in 2013 and it is essentially um, the the body which enforces a mechanism um, which tries to ensure that um, markets are working effectively and particularly yeah, the supply chain in relation to food and buying practices. Um, this debate, I suppose, centres on, on the fact that it's not living up to its name and it isn't actually delivering what it should be. So we had quite a lively and um, interesting debate where some politicians were very, very strong in terms of um, their critique of the grocery code adjudicator. And I'm just going to pick on a little quote that was put forward by Richard Ford, who is the Lib Dem MP for Tiverton and Honington. So he says, some of these supermarkets are operating a little bit like a cartel. I'm not alleging that there is a cartel, but they're operating in some ways like a cartel. To give you an example, from December, Aldi came out just before Christmas and said it was going to sell six vegetables for 15 pence. So for example, you could buy a bag of carrots for 15p. This is way below the cost of production, that would be one thing, but then it was copied by another six supermarkets that have done exactly the same thing. It's obviously captured the imagination of not just the public, but it was a, a very well attended debate in itself. And I think this issue of supply chain fairness is not going away. I've always had a sense that MPs are very good at listening to their constituents and often fighting their corner uh, for something particularly that they might lose, I suppose, but less good at actually looking into the future and trying to work to give farmers the agency that they need for change. And there's often a sense in politics that politicians and governments tend to follow public opinion more than they lead. And this is often quite pronounced, I think, in, in farming and food systems particularly. So here we've got you know lots of backbench MPs, often from rural constituencies, and they're saying some of the right things. They're sort of saying, you know, that farmers need the help, that the, the prices are too low. But do you think that's actually going to translate into a change in policy? Time will tell, but we do have powers within the UK Agriculture Act to better regulate um, the supply chain and to increase, I suppose, fairness and transparency within that as well. So to shine a harsher light on those that aren't dealing fairly. And I've said this time and again, but yeah, we have elms and the transition to public money for public goods, but that can only be achieved through a fair return for private goods as well. I think this um, helps to, to make that debate, I suppose, more prominent. It on its own isn't going to ultimately deliver that. And it's going to be quite a brave government that intervenes within the supply chain with, with more force. But I think this is not an issue. I think this is an issue that isn't going to go away. And I think whenever we bring in some of the challenges with food shortages, the impact of food inflation and quite a frustrated farming population at the moment. And we don't have to look too far to see some of the, the issues with um, large scale farmer protests in Europe that have been co-opted by far right organisations really capitalising on that frustration. It makes sense, I think, to look at this in a more systemic and kind of long-term way to try and avoid some of those things and head them off and, and provide that kind of fairer return because, yeah, we risk some of the, the same issues coming to light here as well. The last thing I just wanted to say on this was that the Grocery Code Adjudicator has just launched a survey, probably on the back of, uh, of this debate and this campaign, uh, and they're encouraging as many suppliers as possible who are supplying into the grocery and to retailers uh, market to, to get in touch with them through this survey and to take part. And that link, if you're listening to this podcast on Monday night, uh, you'll need to wait till Tuesday morning for the link, but the, there will be an article about this on the website tomorrow morning Tuesday and uh, the link will be there to take part in that survey. The last article that we're going to look at before we we go to a break and, and then hear from our guest is Farmers Aim to Save Long Compton Abattoir from Closure. And so this is obviously a small abattoir, yet another small abattoir at risk of closure. But here we have uh, farmers banding together trying to do a community buyout effectively. And so what they're doing is they're looking for public and private investment. Uh, they're going to be selling community 
shares. I think each share is worth a thousand pounds. And at the moment, they're simply asking for expressions of interest. So if you go to the website and find that article, click through to the Long Compton, uh, the Save Long Compton Abattoir campaign, then just because you've shown an expression of interest, it's not committing you to anything at the moment. But please do go and have a look because although this is a small story, you know, in terms of its, you know, it's one small abattoir, it is emblematic of a critical national challenge that we have. Uh, and this urgent need to arrest and reverse the decline in small abattoirs. And DEFRA is still, despite the Small Abattoirs Fund, overall clearly of the view that small abattoirs are anachronistic, that larger abattoirs are more efficient. It's that word again, isn't it? They can kill more quickly, they can kill more cheaply. But again, there are big social costs, poorer quality jobs, there's lower animal welfare outcomes, uh, all focused on keeping food as cheap as possible for the consumer. But of course, as we've discussed, small abattoirs are critical for food and ecological security. They're at the vanguard, really, of that regenerative transformation that's so important and that the government wants to see in terms of its own ambitions for nature. And really, it's all around that ability to uh, to take on private kill, where a farmer can turn up with one animal or three animals and they can get that animal killed and returned to them. They can talk to the abattoir about you know, returning the hide as well in a condition that can then be used to produce leather for regenerative leather uh, supply chains. And this is simply a service that is not offered by the larger abattoirs. They, they just can't cope with that kind of thing. And we have this ever dwindling network. Uh, and, and essentially, we have a, a critical national infrastructure that's having to see succeed in a private cost-centred marketplace. And it feels like we just need a whole new approach to this. And I just wonder, Phil, we, I mentioned the Small Abattoirs Fund. Do you think that's going to help at all in this instance? Well, the total budget to that scheme off the top of my head is around four million pounds. And when we're looking at about three million um, to cover, yeah, I suppose to, to help save this, a particular abattoir, I think it's unlikely that it will have a major impact on it. So that points to the need, as you were saying before, a real joined up and kind of strategic view of what is needed to deliver a successful farming transition and the potential tension between public policy and payments for public goods and a supply chain and marketplace, which is very much looking at that efficiency and economies of scale and all those sorts of things brought into it as well this kind of rural development angle as well in terms of uh, local com- local economies bringing in like local food culture and things like that too and I think small laboratories are going to be absolutely crucial within that and I think this points to the potential lack of a joined up rural development strategy to go alongside a transition to public money for public goods fantastic let's take a break We're back and we're joined by Stephen Alexander, who's the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network in Northern Ireland. Stephen, hello. And just could you start off by giving us 60 seconds? You know, what, what kind of farm do you have? What kind of farmer are you? Yeah, thanks for having me along. Good afternoon, everybody. The sort of farm we run a regenerative farm here. So we're running about uh, 90 to 100 acres as such. Uh, we're the first tenant farmers in Northern Ireland. So we have uh, 60 acres of a tenant National Trust property on the Irish Sea coast and then we've got about 34, 35 acres of sort of marginal ground and ASSI on the Strangford Lock side, if people know uh, that area. We're on a herd of approximately 140 animals as such, 98% uh, pedigree Dexter and we have ventured in this past couple of years into some belted Galloways and some back black Galloways. We're very fond of the uh, native breed as such and it suits our ground we are pasture for life certified which means we don't feed any grain at all everything is pasture finished uh and it's not even pasture finished it's fed on pasture at all times it works very well for us because the inputs are low uh whenever we say we're regenerative as such so we, we we try to take care of the soil try to improve the water quality and we are very much into trying to increase biodiversity. 
Now, the island of Ireland is famous for its grass, uh, you know, and so Pasture for Life would seem like it was an obvious sort of membership scheme, assurance scheme for people to be part of. You mentioned being regenerative there. Is that the norm in Northern Ireland? No, it's certainly not the norm. And to be honest, to be fair to everybody, it wouldn't have been the norm the norm for us uh, where we farm down in the county down coast here either. But it was sort of fell into it because the ground that we have was fairly marginal as such and uh, we needed an animal uh, that suited that ground and could thrive on pasture and very quickly we saw that number one inputs by putting fertilizer slurries and that on the ground we were we would be damaging the environment or the people who had farmed it before us we would say it would be damaging the environment flowing into Strangford Lock so we sort of fell into that regenerative term you know we would have called we would have been regenerative 10 15 years ago when the term wasn't even there but really it was financial fantastic now Stephen you're joining us because there was an article that appeared on 8.9.com recently which was four point plan to back nature friendly farming in Northern Ireland and of course this was put out by the nature friendly farming network now essentially just to sort of kick us off on this farmers in Northern Ireland are not being rewarded for working in a way that balances nature recovery and food production uh, as much as their counterparts are in the rest of the British Isles. Nature Friendly Farming Network has come up with a four-point plan for the Assembly at Stormont to work on as soon as it returns. So I wonder if you could just sort of set us up with this. What is the problem in Northern Ireland and why are you putting this news out now? Is something about to happen in terms of the Assembly? Yeah, well, you know, we would, <laughs> we all, Northern, the one thing about Northern Ireland is it's a country of hope, so it is, and we are hopeful that we're going to have a government. The main problem is we have a lack of government and then that leads into a lack of direction and that then means that we have a lack of policy and I suppose ultimately then we're, what we're ended up with is we've sort of inactivity of the department that looks after us, that's DERA, the Department of Environment and Rural Affairs we fall under. When everybody's not co-joined and working in the same direction and pulling in, the, in, the, in that direction, we're going to struggle. You know, if we don't have policy, we have targets to hit. And we've been missing those targets. So we really can't do much without government because we need that ministerial sign-off for any policies or business that uh, DERA want to bring forward to the farmer. Now, obviously, those sort of conditions that were, you know, associated with the European Common Agricultural Policy, those are dropping away. Is there stuff that's kind of coming in in its place or are you just waiting for there to be a new administration? No, Is no, there well, something that's... There should be. Basically, there should be uh, policy, you know, throughout the rest of the United Kingdom, you know, Wales, Scotland... And England, you know, they're driving forward in this. I, even Southern Ireland as well is pushing forward. We are left really sort of, in a farming terms, sort of sucking the hang tip, if you know what I mean. Uh, and we're we're being left behind at the minute. Everybody else is striving forward with some, I, I would call some really decent environmental proposals and strategies. We're actually, we're sitting in a bit of a vacuum at the minute. We're struggling. Farmers are struggling. You know, farming is a long, you need long-term guidance and long-term, you need to put long-term, I'd say probably a 10-year plan to guide your farm forward. We can't do that at the minute because we have none of these policies or schemes in place as such. Phil, perhaps you could take us through the details of the four-point plan that's been proposed. Of course I can. And uh, yeah, great to have you on the on the podcast, Stephen. Good to see you. Yeah, so the four-point plan is essentially a bit of um, a, a laying down of the gauntlet of what we think as an organisation, Northern Ireland's government, if it returns, um, needs to do to really drive the agenda forward. And the first of those is to publish comprehensive details of the Farming for Nature package. And that is immediately as soon as possible. There is a commitment. And to give a bit of background, there was a consultation that was delivered by the previous Agriculture Minister, Edwin Putz. And a decision was made on that just before the previous assembly collapsed. So there is a bit of legislative, well, not legislative, there's a bit of policy cover for civil servants to drive certain elements of the policy moving forward. Within that, there was a commitment that a farming for nature package would be developed and that this would take up the vast majority of funding with a very, very specific and detailed over an appropriate time period. So we don't know when that's going to be, but we just need to see what that detail looks like, how the scheme is structured, 
what it's going to do and by when. The next ask within the four-point plan is a commitment to funding schemes at a level which will deliver nature and climate commitments. So Northern Ireland has um, signed up to a very, very, very ambitious and stretching climate act. And again, this was put in place just before the previous assembly collapsed. We also have an environment strategy or a draft environment strategy, should I say, which is waiting, awaiting sign-off. And it has various different elements within that that government has to has to deliver. But if we're not getting funded properly and this scheme isn't going to be funded at the level it should be, then the chances of actually ensuring that land use delivers those objectives are pretty low. The next Phil, piece- just before you go on to the next one, just just help me out because you know it's it's important for listeners to kind of understand you know how things function in Northern Ireland, and and we don't talk about you know people don't talk about Northern Ireland enough. If there isn't a government at the moment, where's this policy come from? Is this policy that sort of happened before the power sharing agreement kind of fell apart, or is it something that the civil service has been bringing forward, or that's been coming out of London? Well, what is it? Where's yeah, it come from? Essentially, essentially, what happens, or is what happened in this case, there was an understanding or a a level of knowledge that the assembly was going to collapse and was going to be brought down by um, the Democratic Unionist Party or the DUP for issues around Northern Ireland and trade and differences between, I suppose, GB and Northern Ireland. So within that, there was um, a massive flurry of kind of policy making and development of legislation to get things passed in advance of that happening. So there would be legislation on the statute books and essentially that would mean that there was some level of cover for civil servants to continue on um, with, with certain bits and pieces essentially to keep the country running. But that only goes so far. So unless there was a ministerial decision made on elements of policy, then it can't go any further than that. So that's the situation that we're in now where civil servants are keeping the seat warm, but not really driving us anywhere. I rudely interrupted you while you were uh, explaining the four points. So the next one is in relation to delivering a long-term level of environmental ambition, and that's to actually sign off and publish Northern Ireland's draft environment strategy, which did previously acknowledge um, that nature-friendly farming specifically had an important role to play um, in delivering Northern Ireland's environmental objectives. And then the last piece within all of this, so to give another bit of an explanation, in England you have um, the UK Agriculture Act, which provides the the basis for payments, public money for public goods and a whole range of that. You've got um, the Agriculture Bill in Scotland, which is currently passing through Holyrood, which will provide that framework legislation in a Scottish context. And you have an Agriculture Bill or Act, should I say, in Wales, which was, which was passed in August. Northern Ireland doesn't have its own domestic framework legislation. So we have a schedule that has been taken out from the UK Agriculture Act, and it essentially allows for changes to be made to EU regs. That means that there's not been this national conversation on what food and farming is for um, to bring together, I suppose, yeah, legislation that provides the framework for payments. It's it's all a bit disparate and not particularly well thought out in our in our opinion. Thanks for that, Phil. So back to you, Stephen. What what difference would this make if this plan was implemented? Once you've got the administration there and working again, what difference will it make for you as a farmer and more broadly for farming in Northern Ireland? I suppose if we can get these things in place and that that is the difficulty, you know, uh, firstly, I suppose, you know, it's going to be a positive change for, for nature and the environment. You know, we're going to be increasing biodiversity, which everybody knows is, is at a total loss on a worldwide scale. And actually, the UK is, is one of the worst places in the world for the loss of biodiversity. Ultimately, too, if we can get these uh, schemes as such put into place, you know, it's going to make farm businesses more resilient and it's going to give them a much more resilient structure. And we also have to think that, again, I don't want to ramp on about it, but farmers need to plan for the future. We're really just land stewards looking off after the land to hand it on to the next generation or whoever's going to look after it, whether it's the family or the government or, or whoever. But but we do need that. We do need these long-term plans. We need the policy. If this policy is set in place, you know, that'll help farmers make a change. If we don't know what the funding is, farmers aren't going to enter into the scheme. So if we do know what the funding is and do know what it's all about, and it's laid out clearly uh, for us all to understand, 
then we'll get more take up for the schemes and ultimately it'll help us. What's the conversation like in Northern Ireland? I mean, both within the farming community itself, but also within the marketplace. Is there a market that's sort of thriving for uh, the type of farming that that you do? Um, and, and, And is there, you know, across the farming community, is there a live conversation of farmers wanting to make the transition at the same time as not being quite sure what to do? You know, recently I've seen a lot of farmers wanting to make the transition. And I've spoke to more mainstream and intensive farmers and if they can see, if they're going to get paid for increasing biodiversity, whether it be planting new hedges, introducing ponds to their farm, introducing herbal laser, multi-species wards to help biodiversity and turning a little bit over to nature, they don't mind where that money's coming from. Uh, you're going to get the farmer who, who know, no, it's all about production, production, production. But if they, I would say if you went to all the farmers here and you said, I tell you what, we're going to give you a payment from now for the next 10 years if you increase the biodiversity and look after nature on your farm. You may well have to drop a little bit of production, but the money will be there. Well, I, I think with the volatile markets that we have in the beef industry and certainly the milk industry, you know, if they're getting that payment every month, that lets them set a plan in place and farm in a different way. There is a slow change. And as far as the market's concerned, you know, we kill possibly three animals, three animals every month. We're a small, we're a small farm as such, but we, those, those animals go into local market. We sell them direct to the, to the public as such. And we can't keep up with demand, but we are a sort of niche market. So, uh, and there is still that need for cheap food, but on that cheap food side, I would say, you know, it's, it's more about educating the public and trying to get the most from the food that we have available to us. Phil, you were going to come in. Just on that market point, so we have to remember that 80% of Northern Ireland's um, output is focused on the export market and the vast majority of that goes to GB. So if there is, um, if there are customers and there's a kind of population that is increasingly wanting to see a lot more than efficiency or wanting to see that, that kind of holistic range of outputs that we were talking about earlier, Finlow, then those that are supplying them are going to have to increase um, their ambition in their game. So it could lead to Northern Ireland becoming less competitive in the marketplace if our government or our assembly or our civil servants aren't looking at, at what people want across the water. Phil, on, on that too, that you're talking about the marketplace there, you know, people more so than ever want to know where their food is coming from and want to know the standards of how those products have been raised or grown. And, and, and I see a big change that way. Where, uh, but we're, we're sitting here in a situation in Northern Ireland where it's, cheaper to import beef than it, and lamb than it is to use your own product. You know, there's something wrong with the system and the system's broken if that's the case. And just I a do. last word to you, Stephen. What's your prediction? Are we going to see the Assembly back soon? I would say the Assembly's going to be forced to go back soon. I would say you're probably going to see a split in the DUP there somewhere along the line. But I think, that, I think Phil's right. You know, he's maybe missed his first target, but I think he's right. I think with a bit of luck this week, we'll maybe get somebody coming back. And, and there is talk of some pilot schemes, some farming with nature pilot schemes coming out. So, you know, that's a really good chance... You know, if, if they've looked at the other schemes throughout the United Kingdom and what's happening in the Republic of Ireland, you know, if, if we can do something better than that, that will be absolutely fantastic. And, and farmers are keen to do it. I just really hope that we don't stick to that status quo that we're in uh, at the minute. But we'll have to live in hope, as I said, at the, at, at the start of that. Well, thanks so much to you, Stephen, for coming on the podcast today. That's Stephen Alexander, the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network in Northern Ireland. Let's take a break.
And we're back. Well, thanks thanks again to Stephen. That was really interesting. As I say, I think it's so important to speak to all of the nations across the United Kingdom uh, rather than you know trying not to be just England-focused. Uh, and yeah. I think we do reasonably at covering Wales uh, and Scotland. And so it's, it's really good to actually get across to Northern Ireland and not just talk to yourself, but talk about Northern Ireland policy as well. Now, I guess as a sort of segue to our longer conversation, there's another article that appeared on 8.9, which is Northern Ireland faces a public health emergency unless permanent access to vet medicines is secured. And this is a story that was inspired by the BVA. They've been warning that Northern Ireland is facing this uh, this emergency. If a permanent solution to ensure access to veterinary medicines is not found, and they were talking to the House of Lords European Affairs Select Committee uh, that are conducting a new inquiry into the Windsor framework and continued access to veterinary medicines across Northern Ireland. Phil, how real is this challenge? I would say it's very real. And Finlow, before I go into the detail of this, I would just like to say that whenever you open the Pandora's box of Northern Ireland, you won't be able to, to stop because there is a, it's a very weird and wacky world for a very small place. Um, well, I look forward to coming back for more conversations in the future. But yeah, I would say this is... Um, it's not a very real and immediate risk, but it is a risk none, none all the same. Essentially, the argument that is being made here is that unless there is a workable solution that enables um, veterinary medication to kind of be brought into Northern Ireland efficiently and effectively from the EU, then there's a real risk of, of shortages. And I think the figure here that's been that's been quoted is 51% of veterinary medicines could be, um, could be lost in terms of of access. And the issue with this is that the the Windsor framework that was brought in place to try and streamline trade between Northern Ireland and GB and also take into account the EU single market within that, it's been brought into play and has subsequently replaced the Northern Ireland protocol of which um, there was, yeah, I suppose lots of critiques and criticisms in terms of the burdens to trade that it brought into place. This is an issue that hasn't been addressed within the Windsor framework, so there is a need to bring something something else in. And that takes, yeah, political will. It takes a good um, relationship with, with those that you're negotiating with as well. And it's I suppose it, it's quite concerning seeing that this didn't make its way into the Windsor framework itself. And it's something that the BVA and others have been have been making the case for for quite a period of time. Um, and the argument is that with this loss of access to veterinary meds, um, that you would see all sectors essentially being being impacted by this. So if it comes to light, then it is a very, very big problem. What I would say is that there's been um, a grace period that has been brought into place to allow the industry to prepare to 2025, but that from the perspective of these organisations is insufficient. There'll still be issues arising by that point in time. Fantastic. Now, just going into the last 10 minutes or so, 10 minutes, he says, hopefully, um, with, of the programme, um, we're going to talk about two stories uh, kind of together, but we'll, we'll start off with one and then lead into the other. And the first is future AMOC collapse. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Linked to Greenland ice loss could have profound impacts. And the AMOC is the Atlantic Meridional uh, Overturning Circulation, otherwise known as the Atlantic Conveyor. And then the second story we're going to sort of you know come into as part Part of this as well, because it's all a, all about climate change and biodiversity losses. That research says that human behavioural crisis is at the root of ecological breakdown. So, just to start with that first one, we've got a new comprehensive analysis of satellite data finding that the majority of glaciers on Greenland have retreated significantly, with the ice cap losing an average of 30 million tons of ice an hour due to global heating. Uh, and just to give us some context, because I think you know often it's difficult to understand those larger numbers. But what's really key here is that this is 20% faster than anyone previously thought. And what they're finding is that when the ice at the end of a glacier carves and retreats, this is Dr. Chad Green from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he says that it's like pulling a plug out of the fjord, which then lets ice drain into the ocean faster. And the reason that this is important over and beyond the fact that it's helping uh, sea levels to rise. It's ever more evidence of, uh, of global climate catastrophe. And they're talking here uh, about, you know, there being this tipping point to irreversible melting that Greenland alone could add one to two metres of sea level rise. What's important is that this melting water from the ice caps, fresh water from Greenland, 
affects and dilutes the water that is forming that Atlantic conveyor. And I'm going to try and explain how the conveyor works for those who, uh, who, who aren't already aware of it. So the AMOC is the Atlantic Meridional uh, Overturning Circulation, which I'm just going to call from now on the Atlantic conveyor because it's so much easier, or, or the AMOC. Now, the Met Office says that this is a large system of, open, of ocean currents that brings warm water from the tropics up into the northern Atlantic, up into the northern hemisphere. And as the warmer water that's coming from the south moves north from the tropics, of course, it cools. And that lower temperature uh, with a high salt content can lead to that water becoming denser, which means that the water sinks. It then becomes cooler and that cooler water, which is lower in the ocean, then spreads south, eventually upwelling into the tropics and reheating. So we have this conveyor belt of activity. But as more fresh water comes in from the ice melt across the ice cap, but you know, Greenland is where we're talking about, that starts to dilute this system. And the AMOC, the, uh, the Atlantic conveyor, is a key element in the mechanisms that transfers heat and energy around the Earth. And if the AMOC is diluted to a sufficient extent, it will slow and ultimately it will stop. And I mean, in basic terms, <laughs> you know, if you look at a map in terms of latitude, we in Great Britain and Northern Europe, we're on a sort of line with uh, mid to northern Canada. So potentially that could be a remarkable difference in the climate that we have here. But of course, if that happens, there will be knock on effects across the world. And so really, who knows what's going to happen? The complex scientific processes that end up with really unpredictable and challenging weather events, essentially. Yeah, it's it's another one of those articles which really point to frogs sitting in a boiling pot syndrome <laughs> where there's a lot of scientists describing in great detail um, the issues that we are going to face in, in a relatively short period of time and the level of certainty that they have that these are going to occur. And generally, I would say a lot of these are, are, are met with a collective shoulder shrug in most cases. And I think this leads us on into the, the next piece in the discussion around human behaviour within this and driving things forward. And but just before we go into that, just before we go into that, there is one other sort of point that I just I remembered that I wanted to bring out, which is yeah. one of, you know, how soon is this going to happen? I guess that's the uh, that's the key. Are we likely to see the conveyor, uh, you know, dis dismantling itself, being diluted uh, anytime soon? And, and I really I should say, you know, that there is a huge variability in terms of what scientists are saying about this. Some are saying that it's likely to happen this century, that it, others are saying it may not happen until after. 2100, but some research, and there is a recent study that says it could happen as soon as 2025. And so there, really, we don't know. And, and as with other things in relation to climate change and biodiversity loss, the ecological you know, catastrophe that's unfolding, there are so many unknowns. And you reach a tipping point here, it can very quickly trigger tipping points elsewhere. So much as Lots of scientists may be slightly more cautious and saying that it's uh, it's further away. There are things that could happen that could tip it into into happening very quickly. Exactly, and the the level of distance between the event occurring does not necessarily mean that you should um, yeah wait till that <laughs> that evidence builds up and you know it's going to be uh, that period of time before it occurs. So. We spoke previously in one of the, the podcasts around the transfer of environmental principles into UK law and policy making. And one of those is the precautionary principle. And that idea is if you haven't have an inkling or reasonable evidence to suggest that there is potential damage of any sort of intervention or activity, um, you should act on that to try and try and limit that from happening. And I think this should be applied in this in this situation. We're already seeing Amok or not, the Im implications in terms of extreme weather from, from climate change. So do you want to add more fuel on the fire, no pun intended, within that? It is concerning. And in terms of food systems, I mean, you know, we think it's difficult at the moment managing with the level of flooding and unpredictability that we have, uh, you know, in the weather systems around the world at the moment. But, you know, when this starts to happen and, it, you know, this this dilution, this breaking apart of uh, of the Atlantic conveyor is something that will happen over a very small number of years. And the impact that that could have on society as a whole, uh, on food systems and on civil security and 
conflicts, mm. you know, will be will be just immense. And you mentioned there that whole sort of concept around managing risk. And there were some industries that were much faster at recognizing the threat of climate change. And if you go across the, to the US, then the American military were one of those organizations. The Pentagon was you know, really aware of the threat of climate change. The insurance sector was really aware of dealing with the threat of climate change because these are sectors, these are industries that are used to managing risk and thinking long term in order to identify risks and mitigate those risks. And as you say, they're not waiting for something to happen. They're dealing with the fact that there is an ever heightening risk that it will and therefore action is necessary. And as you say, that kind of brings us on, doesn't it, to the uh, to the next story? It does indeed. And this was a piece which, um, yeah, looked at behaviour, how human behaviour is causing us to kind of <laughs> lead to our own downfall, essentially. So how humans consume natural resources at rates faster than they can be replenished. Um, and then also the waste that is caused as a result of that. And it's far more than what the earth can actually handle at any any time. So the authors of this work frame this existential threat as the human behavioural crisis. And they make the point that um, there was human behaviours that were quite important in evolutionary terms and were adaptive at a point in time. But now they've moved to maladaptive human behaviours and they manifest themselves in ecological overshoot um, or runaway climate change, for example. So... They say that these human impulses have been exploited, co-opted for profit to the point that, um, yeah, they're actually threatening life on Earth. One of the things that really kind of came came through for me within this was some of the, the recommendations that came through at the end. I think the idea of how we frame some of these issues and how we, we talk about it, and I think that previous story speaks very much to the very um, rigid kind of scientific risk. And this is exactly what will happen. Here's the figures behind it. Here's um, what we would expect in terms of the tipping point. Here's what we expect and the amount of people that will go hungry by a certain point in time. Here's the weather that you could have. And this is the way that we've spoken about these things yeah, for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't really brought us through to, to anything better. And there's a lot of talk around this in terms of the recommendations of storytelling within this and looking at new ways of trying to convey not just the problems that we have to overcome, but the solutions in, in getting there with, within a space as well. They speak about creating new social norms that bring our appetites and behaviours back within planetary boundaries. And making the point that for many of this, this doesn't actually have to equate to, to, to pain. And that's one of the things that quite get, gets brought up quite, quite often time and again is, is the pain of the transition. Um, but it makes the point that in affluent countries, we're, we're existing way beyond self-sufficiency. We're probably exist, like we're probably, a lot of us are existing in ways which are harmful to our own human health, harmful to our communities. So one of the co-authors says, this paper is a call to action. It is a new way to frame an issue that deserves a better conversation. And to address ecological overshoot, we can start by reframing the collective social norms that drive it. Good things will happen. We find new ways to connect scientists and storytellers. It's interesting. I, I found this fascinating. And I think that whole human behaviour story and the evolution story is really important. And I mean, the way that I kind of thought about this for myself, I was trying to think about the way that we have evolved and why we've evolved and then think about what those positive human traits are. And you mentioned their storytelling, which is, you know, one that's been pulled out in the research. It was one I was thinking about earlier. But of course, it's so difficult. And a lot of people have tried this. You know, there was a newspaper that possibly still is called Positive News that was trying to sort of focus on the good news stories from uh, society. But it never did particularly well where you've got, you know, papers like the Daily Mail, for example, that, that are kind of, you know, they manifestly shriek <laughs> about some of the crises that, you know, whatever level they are in whatever part of society. And it's those papers that are particularly popular. And that's not a new thing. Again, it's one of those things that's part of the human condition condition. If we go back to, you know, whether it's fairy tales from the dim and distant past, um, uh, particularly some of the original fairy tales, which are really quite grim and bleak, um, you know, up to thrillers of today, they're about conflict, 
pain emergency. You know, the story of Little Red Riding Hood is, you know, it's it's about this kind of this meeting with the big bad wolf, which is a, an existential threat to, to Red Riding Hood. And so telling those positive stories is a real challenge. But at the same time, we need to think about the way that we've evolved to deal with problems. And I think that Red Riding Hood story kind of it tells us a little bit you know, about the way that we face these things in the past. We are very good at responding to immediate threats, to clear and present danger. We're very, very poor at uh, relating to longer term threats and understanding what they are. And it's only when that threat becomes immediate that we deal with it. But then if you think about Hurricane Sandy in New York or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, the flooding this year in the UK, yesterday, 19.6, nearly 20 degrees right up at the top of Scotland, Kinloch U, uh, the hottest day of any winter day uh, in the United Kingdom. But going back to Sandy and Katrina, you know, there was a lot of activity, a lot of action, a lot of people saying we really need to work on this climate change thing. But it it kind of petered out. It was there for a couple of years. It had a, a two-year, perhaps, time mm. frame. But then that memory disappeared. And the question is, you know, we can recognise the problem, but are we really capable of doing anything about it? I like to hope. Stephen said earlier we were a place of hope. I like to hope that we are. And reading this piece and this article made me think of a book that I read recently, which was called Sacred Nature and it was from Karen Armstrong who was previously um, a nun and who left, I suppose, left the church and has become a leading voice in terms of academic conversation around religion. And she wrote this really interesting book, which um, yeah, it was called Sacred Nature, which looked at, I suppose, our relationship with the natural world from, I suppose, a very kind of Western Christian perspective, how that has influenced our behavior, has influenced how we interact with the world, has kind of driven things in many ways. She makes the case that there is, are examples and learnings of, of other religions that have a different relationship and a different kind of valuing of nature and the natural world. And it's, it's a lot less utilitarian. It's a lot more interactive, I would say, and makes the point that we, we can borrow and we can learn from some of those to create, create new stories and create um, a new relationship, which kind of guides our decision making. And we speak a lot, I suppose, about the role that religion had and culture and how people behaved. I suppose that has been overridden by the the god of economics in a way um, and the god of the market. There's that argument of what's next after that as well and how does that fit in within this. And in her book, she makes some very interesting points around what drives people. And I suppose there's there's two driving functions that she describes and one of them is mythos and that's meaning and kind of who you are and what 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 life means to you, and then there's logos, which is rationality. So that's um, the statistics, that's the, the 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 logical argument, the case for action, and they both have their limitations, and they're both really important. And maybe one's been looked at more so than the other one, and we need to kind of draw back some of that that meaning and where all that fits within this. Essentially, we're all driven by myths in a way. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? That that, that the way that you've sort of brought religion and science together there, uh, and of course the way that Christianity works. It's very hierarchical. You know, it's it's lots of instructions and control and people being told what to do and what to think. Very often, it's very male dominated, and of course that sort of then bled into our political system, the way that we you know, our relationship with different governments. But what it makes me think as well is about the way that religion has functioned and religion you know whether it's the bible or the quran or you know whatever other uh, major religious text where you're sort of stemming from a, a monotheistic deity it's stories that are contained in those books. It's stories that are telling people how to behave, that are advising people how society should function. And of course, people turn to religion more at times of trauma, at times of, of societal disassembly. And, uh, and while we've seen a big uh, move away from the church 
in Western society over the course of the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, while people have been feeling you know, fairly comfortable, fairly affluent, increasingly so, perhaps we're going to see a return towards religion as the world begins to more visibly uh, dissemble, to fall apart as a result of the ecological crisis. And perhaps there is an opportunity. Here's the, here's the thing. Here's an opportunity for religion to get back in on the act and, <laughs> and to start telling those positive stories of change. Yeah, it's a very good point, and it would be interesting to see. And I think we're at a at a point where the world, and I'm going to get very on my high horse and um, probably lose lose track of the argument here. But we're at a point of various different tipping points, quite ugly and uncomfortable change in many different different levels. And it does feel that we're, in a cliched way, at a, at a at a tipping point and at the scales of we could go into yeah complete utter disaster or into this new flourishing world. There's never been so much to gain, but there's never been so much to to lose as well at the same time. And you like to hope it's the the ugly part of the metamorphosis before moving into into something better. That might be pie in the sky, but as Stephen said, we can live in hope. <laughs> we can. And you mentioned myths earlier on, and I wonder, you know, the impact of the myths that we tell ourselves. And in terms of climate policy, we've talked before, haven't we, about the way in which this idea that we can somehow hold global warming down to 1.5 degrees. And now I'm seeing this sort of new idea that uh, that, that keeps sort of coming out from uh, from some of the press releases and articles that I, that I read. And this idea that we're going to go beyond 1.5, but that actually we're going to come back to 1.5 at the end of the century. People have started to realise that 1.5 really people don't believe that it's possible anymore mm. and so there's this idea well if we do enough we can drag it back down rather than just unleashing processes and tipping points that push us well beyond and it seems to me that this is a myth and if we keep telling ourselves myths then in that attempt to build momentum actually what we're doing instead is reducing that momentum because people just don't believe the story i think it's entirely feasible to avert 1.5 degrees of warming, we could, if we wanted to, make the changes that would enable that to happen in a relatively short space of time. The question is, can we meet 1.5 degrees in the way that our, 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 our economies are currently structured and within the economic system that we currently operate? And that is, that's the kind of the big question. It's not necessarily... Um, can we do it? Can we do it within the current model? And I suppose whenever you look at the Committee for Climate Change's modelling, for example, and their projections, it's all based around a similar economic structure as we have now and the same economic objectives that we've always had as well in terms of delivering continued economic growth. And there are those that argue that that is not necessarily the way that we should be looking at it. And this paper speaks about it as well in terms of the role that um, yeah, we need to talk about limits to growth within that. We need to talk that previous quote that I read out sounds to me very similar to um, what pro proponents of degrowth would say as well in terms of certain economies can only grow they've, they've reached pretty much the capacity of which they can grow and now anything beyond that is really really extractive and there's a question of um, yeah, is there something better and more refined in those places that still allows people to live dignified lives and to prosper and to prosper economically, but maybe not in what we've been doing so and what we've been looking at in the past? That brings me back again to that idea of myth. I mean, yeah, we could we could both we could all everybody who's working in this space could say, well, here here's a pathway that you can get to one point five. We've all got our pathways. The difficulty is actually agreeing those things and then making that system reform. And that's why I say that it's now a myth that it's now you know it's impossible to stay there. Not because it's actually physically impossible, because but because we don't have the systems in place. We won't. We we simply don't have the governance in order to facilitate that system change in order to get there and again that sort of comes back to the stories you know that we tell ourselves and the final thought that i kind of got on this and i wonder what you think is around different sectors of society and the role of politicians the role of individuals the role of markets and it seems to me that politicians are largely impotent to do anything you know the rhetoric may be there but as soon as they actually try and do anything they're going to see themselves moving down in the polls 
individuals are unable to affect change alone, but they can make their voices heard and call on politicians, I suppose. But then you've got the markets, which is why 8.9 was really constructed in the first place, why we put it together, because we saw the big opportunity was to change markets, because markets... Uh, and large companies, perhaps, you know, are, are different to governments in the way that they can look ahead in the future. They can recognise that they need to innovate in order to, you know, just continue existing for their own resilience, for their own self-interest. And they're able to plan towards that in a way which obviously they need to listen to their customers and they need to listen to their shareholders, but they're not beholden to an electorate in the same way. And so I feel like I'm looking to the markets to see the biggest change most rapidly. What do you think? Very good question. I think there is a strong element of truth within that. And I think there is immense power for markets to shape a better future and to avert some of the crises that we're talking about at the moment. I think there is legitimate challenge to the point of how do they demonstrate that they are going to continue perpetually growing themselves without overshoot. And I think that's the challenge is, do they acknowledge that the constraints or the kind of philosophy that's kind of dictating how our economies work at the moment, is there an acknowledgement that those aren't necessarily sufficient in a, in a, in a future which has addressed climate change? And I'd, I'm, I don't know where I sit within all that myself, but without that kind of fundamental question or conversation around what what a good organisation actually looks like and what what shareholders actually want their, to see their organisations do. And, and to be able to genuinely envision 20 years from now. And it may well mean that, you know, what that company is doing today to earn money is actually quite different from what it's going to be doing. It may be the same company, the same people perhaps even running it, but what they're producing and the way that they're producing it will be different. Yep. And they've got to make that transition to get there. I think we're coming, you know, we, we've, I said 10 minutes, didn't I? And we're way over that 10 minutes. Um, and, and I just want to come back, just a sort of final thought, I suppose, around human traits and what those positive human traits are. We've talked about storytelling, that, that ability, that capacity to build for a better future, that kind of dig for Britain sort of mentality. If we can sort of inspire that functional, you know, what can I do? And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people feel so impotent in the face of, uh, of climate change. You know, what what can they do? What can individuals do to change things? Um, and building aspiration in there. So it's not just about what we're losing, but it's about what we're gaining instead. And with that, I would like to give another shout out to, to Karen Armstrong. And one of the points that she has made, which can influence our traits and influence how we interact with the world. And she, she mentioned that in um, I suppose ancient Chinese religions, the intense contemplation of nature or quiet sitting and I suppose it's similar or akin to meditation and it was a way of freeing, freeing yourself from your ego and tuning into this kind of sacred natural force which kind of flows through everything. And I think within that you gain greater appreciation for the world around you and how your behaviour impacts that. I think that's a perfect place to end. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now. And I've been Phil Carson. Bye for now. <laughs>